Thank you, Bert and Jean Ellen. Let's uh, pray for the offering. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we, we come before you based upon the merits of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross and our union and identification with him. And we like to express our great love and appreciation for gracing us out and treating us better than we deserve. We thank you for the logistical grace blessings that you've given to us and the spiritual blessings because of our relationship with you and your Son and the Spirit. And we just want to uh, reflect and express our love and appreciation for you. So, Father, we, we do this in obedience to you, in love for you, and we thank you for the work of your Son on our behalf and the work of the Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. And we pray that this, this offering would be pleasing to you and done with the proper spirit of love and appreciation toward you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles, if you haven't turned there already, Obadiah verse 7. Excuse me, Obadiah verse 1. Verse 7 is our... We'll be looking at that in our second session today. As you can see on the board, we'll be looking at Obadiah verse 7, and which talks about Edom's allies will betray her. And of course, as we'll see, uh, they betrayed the kingdom of uh, Edom. They betrayed the southern kingdom of Judah, their blood relatives. They betrayed them by going with the Babylonians and along with the Babylonians attacking the, uh, the, the kingdom of Judah. So what turn, comes around goes around. God will uh, let them experience what they uh, made the, uh, the kingdom of Judah experience. The, the kingdom of Judah was betrayed by their blood relatives, the, the Edomites, and now Edom would be betrayed by her allies that she entrusted in. So if you could, let's look at Obadiah. We'll read the whole uh, chapter because it's only 21 verses. I want to get us familiar with it like we did uh, Jude because Obadiah is not a very familiar book for people like Jude. So we'll read the, all uh, 21 verses and then look at verse 7 in detail. So it says in verse 1, Obadiah verse 1, and I just want to just do one thing here. I have no idea. I have the the NIV there, but it's not the NIV I want. There we go. All right. Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small, insignificant, in other words, among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock... And you who make your homes on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Talking about their uh, geographical uh, setting, where they were. Though you, verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not only steal as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But Esau, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border, and your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? 
Your warriors, Teman, speaking of a, a geographical location in Edom, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence, now we get the charges against them, given to them, uh, uh, presented by uh, God here through the prophet Obadiah. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Divine retribution. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so also the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. The cup there is speaking of the cup of God's wrath. Verse 17, and now we have the prophetic part of it, which is yet, yet future to be fulfilled. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau, says the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles, yet future, who are in Canaan, will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord, speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. So if you look at verse 7, our verse in the second session, all your allies will force you to the border, your friends will deceive and overpower you, those who eat your bread will, be a, will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. So we see here in verse 7, my translation, each of your allies will certainly force you from your territory. Your treaty partners will certainly cause you to be deceived. They will certainly conquer you. you. Your trusted friends will set an ambush for you. There'll be absolutely no intelligence concerning it. So in your NIVs, verse 7, it says, all your allies have driven you to the border. That is expressing the certainty that each of Edom's allies will in the future drive her from her territory. The word, the, the verbs there in this passage are what we call, throughout most of the, the book, are what we call prophetic perfects meaning it's expressing the certainty of that what God says this is going to take place, this is as good as done. That's what the prophetic perfect is saying. So it's talking about the certainty of this taking place. Then it says your friends will deceive you. That expresses the certainty that in the future, Edom's treaty partners will deceive her. And then when it says your friends will overpower you, that expresses the certainty that in the future, Edom's treaty partners will conquer her. And then it says, those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. That's expressing the idea of Edom's trusted friends setting an ambush for her. Betrayal. And then, it's also it says at the very end, but you will not detect it. And that indicates that Edom will possess absolutely no military intelligence regarding her treaty partner's plan to ambush her. So we see here, verse 7 contains five prophetic declarations. All have been fulfilled in history. 
All of them in film history, as we'll say. And so this is a good thing to defend the Bible. We're talking about canonicity in our studies on Wednesday. And, the, and we'll be looking at inspiration and inerrancy. One of the things that we, 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 like, we say as Christians is that we tr- live by the Bible. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And what is evidence of that? Fulfilled prophecy. So once you get done with this book with me, you'll be able to say, you want to see fulfilled prophecy in the Bible? Here it is. Okay, you'll be able to show that this was fulfilled in the 6th century B.C. Everything that took place with the kingdom of Edom and as a result of what they did to the kingdom of Judah. All of that will be fulfilled, has been fulfilled in history. The Bible is inspired by God. There's a little bit of prophecy. I could take you to other passages. Daniel chapter one, chapter one, uh, 11, verses 1 through 35, all been fulfilled in minute detail in history. You get Daniel chapter 2, uh, the, except for the, the, uh, the feet on the image, of, uh, the, the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, all have been fulfilled in history. Through Babylon, Medo-Persia, uh, Greece, and Rome. And then only the final stage of the Roman Empire is yet to come. The, seven, the four beasts and Daniel chapter 7, all of those beasts have been fulfilled in history, the, and except for the ten horns and the little horns on the fourth beast, which speaks of the final stage of the Roman Empire. Those four beasts in chronological order, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, all fulfilled in minute detail in history. And then you get the prophecies, as I said before in the first session, of the, of the first advent of Christ. There's an article on our website at winstrom.org where you have, I have, a, an, under Christology, in our written library, I have the prophecies, that, many of the prophecies that Christ fulfilled in his first advent. I would learn them, memorize them, because this is powerful things when, uh, to use when you, not only for yourself, it gives you confidence in what you're reading, uh, that it's inspired by God, and, but it also, it helps lead the unsaved to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Obadiah 7 contains five prophetic declarations pertaining to Edom's allies who are described in these declarations as treaty partners and trusted friends. They were trusting in their allies. So much so that it was really a trap. In the end, they, they shouldn't have been, they, they should have been like every other nation, worshiping the God who created the nations, who created the time, matter, space, continuum. But like the rest of the pagan nations of the world, they trusted and their, their rulers, their intelligence, and also, uh, also the, with Edom, their geographical location, which served as a great deterrent for foreign armies invading. So they trusted in all those things, their leaders, their wealth, like many nations, including our own today, instead to the, to, and not trusting in the God who's the creator of the time, matter, space, continuum, who became a human being 2,000 years ago at Bethlehem and rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and he will rule this earth for 1,000 years. So uh, they were trusting in their treaty partners rather than the God of Israel. So again, Obadiah, verse 7, contains five prophetic declarations pertaining to Edom's allies who are described in these declarations as treaty partners and trusted friends. Together, they predict the nation of Edom will suffer a great betrayal at the hands of her allies who were Gentile nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world in the 6th century B.C. So th- why is this going to happen? Why are they going to suffer a betrayal? Because of what they bet- how they betray- betrayed their blood relatives. So the punishment fits the crime. Lex Talionis, it's a big principle in the Old Testament. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay? That means the punishment must fit the crime. 
So your crimes, Edom, this is what the judgment is. It fits, my, my judgment to you is going to fit what you did to the kingdom of Judah. You're going to get what you deserve. You, you didn't trust in me, okay? And yes, the kingdom of uh, Judah was a bad witness, but you didn't trust in me. And so now I'm going to bring down the judgment on you. you. What you did to them and betrayed them, your blood relatives, I'm going to do to you with your allies that you trust in and you are so confident that they're going to run to your aid when uh, an army attacks like Babylon. So the first of these uh, particular assertions that we have here, these five, declarations, these five prophetic declarations, the first predicts, as we read in our NIV translation, and also you saw in mine, the first predicts that each of Edom's allies will certainly force her from her territory, indicating that her allies will take military action against her, which will result in her citizens being dispossessed from the land. This was fulfilled from approximately 500 BC onward, since from that time, the Edomites were pushed westward into the Negev. And I got some quotes from uh, scholars that, that, that talk about this. Now, the second assertion, the second prophetic declaration asserts that her treaty partners, Edom's treaty partners, will certainly cause her to be deceived, indicating that her treaty partners will cause her to believe things which are not true in order to deceive her so as to take advantage of her militarily. Oh, that's what a lot of thing goes on in intelligence. I love I love to read oh, spy stuff and and stuff that uh, in the you know of the CIA and, the, and uh, different people uh, different intelligence things and books that have been out put out in, over the years and read about guys like uh, th there were uh, famous people of the day in intelligence in our country and I love to read that stuff. I love that the the, the uh, just love that and I just think, and it's a big uh, genre in in the movies and books today and. Uh, and I, I like that, but one of the things that goes on with intelligence, you're trying to deceive the other nation. You're trying to let the other nations, your enemies, think of things that are not true. And that's exactly what happens to Edom. Why? Because God was upset with them, what they did to Judah, right? And he sent a fallen, the fallen angels, he allowed the fallen angels to go and, dis, uh, and move these other nations of uh, Edom that were her allies and move them uh, to deceive Edom. God, the fallen angels, God permitted it, and that's what the envoy speaks of at the beginning of the book of Obadiah, as we pointed out last week, and those fallen angels come in, and they go and they, they deceive the rulers of Edom and her allies into allow, uh, uh, precipitating this, conquest, uh, this uh, conflict to take place and this betrayal. So the second prophetic declaration here in verse 7 asserts that her treaty partners will certainly cause her to be deceived, indicating that her treaty partners will cause her to believe things which are not true in order to deceive her so as to take advantage of her military. The third prophetic declaration asserts that Edom's treaty partners or allies will defeat her militarily, implying that she will be defeated on the battlefield by her trusted allies and treaty partners. The fourth prophetic declaration predicts that Edom's trusted friends, who would be her allies and treaty partners, will set an ambush for her. What a betrayal. Which means that her trusted friends will plot and execute a surprise attack on them. And then finally, the fifth and final prophetic declaration asserts that there'll be absolutely no military intelligence whatsoever regarding this plot by Edom's allies to conquer her militarily. I, I, I read a lot of stuff on the Cold War, and especially the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is absolutely fascinating. And uh, what's interesting is that 
they found out after this, the, uh, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union and all this stuff was released by the Soviets. And I remember Robert McNamara, it was in the 90s, Mac, Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of uh, State for the United States under Kennedy and Johnson. And so when the Russians came out with this, declassified all this stuff, and one of the things they found out, and it terrified McNamara, and all the guys who were like Rusk and those guys, the Secretary of State, and he's, they said that the, guy, the commanders on the ground for the Russians had tactical nuclear weapons, and they could, if they saw fit, use them. Now, what they were trying to tell Kennedy is go into Cuba with a, a massive army and just blow them off the face of the earth, attack them. Invasion. It was in the works. The, the Cubans were waiting for it, and so Khrushchev knew it was eventually going to happen. That's why he put those things in there, anyways, as a deterrent. So then you had this was supposed to happen. And Kennedy was scared to death that there'd be something that he did that his intelligence didn't know, and the CIA had no clue that this was the case. That these guys could shoot him off without Khrushchev having any control of them. And they asked these guys, they had the interviews of these guys, and they said, um, would you have used them? Well, of course we would have used them. If the Americans are coming to attack us, they had more people on the, on, on, in Cuba than the Russians did, more soldiers than we, our intelligence knew. And what I'm trying to bring out is that our intelligence is not perfect. No intelligence is perfect. If you, if you get perfect information, great. So you just don't know. So these guys would have shot them and they would have, they would have killed a million guys on the beach. Easy. They would take out Guantanamo Bay. Who knows what would have happened if they got to that point? That's what, that's what the problem that they, they were fe the fearing. And, and McNamara was white as a ghost when he heard that. That's exactly what Kennedy was afraid of. It's something we didn't know. Okay? Edom just didn't know. Why? Why didn't God let them know? Because he was angry with them. He's bringing down judgment. So the fifth and final prophetic declaration asserts that there'll be absolutely no military intelligence whatsoever regarding this plot by Edom's allies to conquer her militarily. Bob Spender, a commentator on the book of Obadiah, uh, I think he's up in Emmaus Bible College in, uh, in Dubuque, Iowa, where I, I lived in that area. He says the following, he says, international treaties leading to political coalitions were prevalent in the ancient Near East. And Edom seems to have been no exception. They were proud of their alliances and thought themselves to be secure because of their friends. This is what I've been telling you, telling you about. Do, who do we, who, do we feel secure? Let's, let's talk about as Americans. Do we feel secure because of our friends and our allies? We really gonna place our security on our friends and allies? Now I know in the, in the natural realm, the United States has to have allies. We have NATO, I get that. Okay, we got all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we could be deceived. Our nation could be deceived, just like Edom. And we could be, face attack and a betrayal by our allies. We don't know. We don't know what's going on. And I don't think anybody, unless you have, uh, you have inside information about what's going on in the Oval Office and the, in the State Department and everything, you really don't know, okay? So, so what we, we, our, is our security has to be upon our, our God, again, as we pointed out, who rules the nations. You know, that's why I say all the stuff that's going on in the, in the natural realm among the nations, okay, it's the, it's the reflection of what's going on in the angelic conflict. 
And as I said many times in the past, and many of you already know this, we are a part of this angelic conflict, okay? So the best thing we could ever do for our country is to be invisible heroes, as we talked about. Learning God's word, putting it to practice, serving in your church, okay? Being a part of a spiritual combat unit, being a part of God's family, and, and, getting, and, and growing to maturity, practicing the command to love one another, praying for our country and our leaders. That's the greatest thing we could do for our nation right now, okay? That's always been the greatest thing we could do for our nation. And that's going to help our nation and its leaders, and they don't even know about us. If they're non-believers, they probably know, they know no such a thing. But we could be the ones that, our prayers could be the ones that protect our leaders from being deceived and get facing betrayal like Edom did at the hands of its allies. Your prayers, your prayers in mind, don't ever underestimate them. You sit at the right hand of the Father. You're in union with Christ. Remember that. You, in the minute you trusted in Jesus, the F Holy Spirit did this. He said, he did many things. He put you in union with Christ. That's why Paul says, you've died with Christ and I'm raised with Christ. Says it all over the place. And you're raised and seated with Christ. So at the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit raised us up and seated us with Christ at his right hand. That means God looks at you and me as sitting at the right hand of the Father. We can't get any closer to the throne. We can't get any closer to the throne. We're there. And we, the, the exciting, exciting thing to understand, we can have an impact on the future of the nations of the world right now. Maybe God wants, the Holy Spirit wants us to be really, really think about these things so we can have an impact and maybe we'll avoid a major war or a major catastrophe to this nation because there were some people in the church that took the word of God seriously and their relationship with God and prayer seriously and pray for their nation with great fervency. That's what we need to do. That's what President Biden needs. That's what the cab his cabinet needs. Everybody in the executive, judicial, legislative branches, they all need this because we might be we're the, in fact, might be. We are the solution to the problem. God rules through the prayers of his saints. God rules through the prayers of his saints. I know this is all going to come to an end, but it's not coming to an end until the church is out of here. The final war, the Armageddon campaign, the last three and a half years of the seventh week of Daniel, we're out of here. We're delivered from the wrath to come, but we want to save as many people as we want. We also love our country, and we want to do what's best for our country. And the best thing for our country is to do what the spiritual life says. The weapons of our warfare, Paul said, are the word of God and prayer. Don't underestimate prayer and the power of God's word. You know, we could have an impact, impact on the culture that we're living in today, this godless culture, but everybody wants to complain. No, we don't have to complain. We pray, we, we try to do, we, we keep our head down, and we do what God wants us to do, and he rules the nations, he takes care of all that. We need to focus on what we need to do, what our job is doing. One of the things that Bill Belichick used to do with his team, he always, and he's had a couple, last couple of years without Tom around, but he would do this, and it's good coaching, he said, do your job. One of the things is when things are going bad for your team is to try to do too much. You're trying to help out somebody here instead of just taking care of your job. Instead, you don't, you're in the, in the, in the, uh, in the interest of trying to help your teammate on, on a coverage and you, the, you are supposed to have responsibility and you neglect your responsibility to help somebody out. You're not doing your job because you're trying to help somebody else do their job. You do your job and he does his job. 
We need to do that as a, as, a, as, a, as a spiritual team, the team of Jesus Christ team that he has here. And we need to just do, do what we can do, okay? Do what God wants us to do, fulfill our responsibilities to our God and each other and the non-Christian community. We owe it to our country to do that. The greatest thing is, that, look about it. We are all, as I said before, in union with Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 8 talks about that. Romans 6 is all about that. Colossians 3 is about that. Our union identification with Christ. Christ God looks at us as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. That's how he views us, okay? Why? He wants us to grow to maturity, become like Christ. Okay? He's elected and predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son, to grow to spiritual maturity. That's the greatest thing, right? Because your godly, Christ-like character can change your culture. It could change your neighborhood, your families, this country. It could have an impact on it. Did Jesus not have an impact in the apostles and Paul growing to maturity and the early church? Didn't they have an impact on the Roman Empire, which was the superpower on a par the United States is today? They did. Slavery was a major institution in the first century AD. It was gone within a couple of centuries without a civil war like we did and bloodletting. No, they did it because the spiritual life was practiced by both slave owners and slaves. And it was gone within a couple of centuries, this major institution. And the Roman Empire continued on because of that tremendous Christian presence, that pivot of mature believers that were in the, in the, in the Roman Empire, led by the apostles and then the early church fathers that followed them. God kept that thing going. He kept that empire going. He, can keep, he keeps any nation going if he sees this positive volition in it. And so we live the spiritual life and be filled with the Spirit. When we, can, when we sin, we confess our sins. We learn God's Word, put it into practice, love one another, okay? As Christ loves us, and all that involves, which means praying and forgiving and patient and tolerant with each other, coaching each other up, and co encouraging each other when we get down. You know, each one of us is, we're, is our, we have to look to our buddy, just like the military does. You look out for your, your, your fellow soldier that's standing right beside you in the foxhole, okay? That's what we need to be like. That makes an impact on the culture. By this, all men, you know, my, know you're my disciples. If we practice that command to love one another. I have this kid, his name's Chris, I've been telling you about, and he, he, he comes out of nowhere. He's like 21 years old. He got messed up in the... Uh, the um, the uh, the um, lordship salvation thing. He's only two years old. Two years being a believer, so spiritually he's like two years old. And he calls me up. I told you a couple about five days ago. We talked on the phone uh, for about a couple of, was a couple of hours over a couple of hours. The next day he called. And we talked a little bit more. I think it was another hour or so. But he was you know he was getting better. It's like he I, I, he just had a. He wanted to know some passages and, and, and just know he's assured of his salvation and how much do I need to, what do I have to believe to get saved? You know, because some people are saying this and some places are this. I say, no, this is what it is. And here's not just me, this is where it is in the Word of God. Okay? There it is. And then yesterday we had a great conversation and he was like, you know, wanting to do something. You know, I said, just get trained, you know, relax. He's very zealous. And he's like, you know, you're, you don't want to be, I gave him some analogies, you know, a parent, you know, doesn't give a 15-year-old a, a child a, a, a Maserati to drive around or any kind of car to drive around until they learn how to drive. 
Okay, you need, God wants you to get trained in the word of God and you need a pastor, I said. If you can't find one in your local area, I'm available. There's the website. And you're in, he's in Florida in school. He said, you can come and visit us sometime too. But I'm trying to tell him, he's like, he, was want, he, want, he wants to make an impact. He, want, he cares about, he's conscientious. I was like very encouraged by that. And I said, well, you should come here because there's a lot of people like you, you know? And so I said, you know, he was, he, he, you know, he wants to, make an impact. He wants to do things for God. He knows he needs to perform good works. So I say, well, you got to learn your Bible first. You know? you got to learn your Bible. You have to learn some doctrine, and then you'll know what you, you eventually God will show you what your gift is. Just serve, you serve and practice the command of love one, serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. The gift will manifest itself. And, you know, but you're, you're just starting out. Just take it easy. Okay? Just relax. It's okay. But I loved his, I, saw, I told him, I love his zeal. He wants to make an impact. I, when, I was, when I was a little boy, I always wanted to be a, a great man. I always wanted, like, how can I ever be a great man? I'd love to be like the great heroes of the past and, you know, the Douglas MacArthur's and, and, the, and all these people that were in the famous, famous in the past. I always wanted to be a great man. It's like, you know, and then, you know, you know I wanna, maybe I want to be a great musician. I want to be this, you know, just like typical boys, right? And I just remember... When I started getting into Bible doctrine, I can. I can be great in God's eyes. I mean, I don't exactly want to be great in people's eyes because look at Jesus, the greatest of all men, the God man and God in flesh, right? Not everybody loved him. They crucified him. His own people, the majority rejected him. So it occurred to me, you know what? I need to be great in God's eyes. And then I heard the concept of invisible hero change my life. So every single one of us can be great in God's eyes. I don't care who you are or what your status is in life, black, white, male, female. I don't care if you're 80, 9 years old, or you're 22, or you're 15 or 16. God can use you. Just want some, you just have to be, make yourself available. But I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm not a great You don't have to be a great scholar. The early, there's only a small group of people that are scholars in the church that God chooses. They have the gift of wisdom, okay? But most of them, most of the early church, one of them was slaves. They didn't even have their own freedom. They were slaves. They didn't have anything. God used those people. So we see that the best, I got to, I'm talking about this because the best thing we could do for our country and, and stop her and protect her from being betrayed by her allies or being attacked by a foreign nation or being uh, or the you know the, having a financial breakdown and a dis, and, and a destruction of our culture as we think of it today or having a breakdown in society in all areas the best thing we could do is to do what we're doing now right what we're doing now it doesn't look like much it's not it's not uh, spectacular it's not like you know you might you're not on the front stage Okay, a lot of, you know, as a pastor, hey, I'm out in the front. That's the way it is, okay? But not everybody's like that. Most people, Christians, are not like that. Nobody knows what they're doing. And some people give too much credit to the pastors. Unless the pastor's practicing when he's preaching, he's a waste, okay? I gotta be just like you. I put it into practice what, I'm, what I've been taught. So it, we, we, the best thing we could do to help our nation and protect her, the land we love, is to live the spiritual life, what we're doing. Edom had no chance. They had no people who loved the word of God. 
In fact, the nation that they portrayed, Judah, had a small, tiny remnant of people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and Obadiah. They only a small remnant in that nation. God wiped out that nation, but preserved that small remnant and used that small remnant with, like, led by Daniel and Jeremiah to lead great rulers of the world like Nebuchadnezzar to a saving knowledge of the God of Israel. Who knows what God could do with any of, any of you, any of us. He could use any of us. That's the great thing about the, the playing field is, has been leveled. Through the baptism of the Spirit, we're all equal before the cross, we're all in union with Christ, we all get different gifts. We can make a huge impact together as a unit and as individuals because each of us has a personal periphery that we're in. Each of us has a particular group of people we work with or we spend time with. We're in particular neighborhoods. We have, well, everybody's different. We all have different influences. We have our own family members. Everybody has their own family members. We can make an impact on them. Never, ever, uh, ever don't ever, ever underestimate your influence on people. What, what could be doing? I think about that kid. I, I'm, I'm praying for him that one day, maybe when he's my age, he'll remember this guy, you know, that helped me. Because I remember guys like J. Vernon McGee or the, or the Bob Themes or, or my pastor, Bob McLaughlin, who helped me in my walk with God and encouraged me, okay? And the, and the, and the Christians that I've had in my life that have encouraged me. Never underestimate what you're doing. Like, for instance, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, some of you might know him. Jonathan Edwards was, came out of New England and he had, he was a, a great, uh, um, a, a great uh, uh, man of God and he was married and had about, I don't know how many kids they had. He probably, back then, they had, he had about 10, 12 kids, I think. But his wife was amazing. They were amazing. She, you know, she, she, she raised these kids and he was there too and was kind of interesting. He got kicked out of his, his dad was a pastor and he took over for his dad when his dad died and then he took over, and then they threw him out because he wouldn't give communion to unbelievers. So they threw him out. And he really basically was writing most of the time, and he had people who supported him as he did that, and he wrote, and he made stuff, they're still reading his stuff today. He's got very famous stuff. Now, I don't agree with everything he says, but he had a huge impact. But I say this on his wife and, his, and him. They raised kids. They did a study on them. They had pro, uh, pastors, evangelists, doctors, politicians, all types of people that made an impact. Judges, all types of people that came out of that family. The children and the grandchildren. But does anybody know Jonathan Edwards' wife? She was in the background, but she what a tremendous impact she made. So again, I say all this because we're talking about the implications of what God did to Edom. He judged that nation for their rejection of him, his will, and also for betraying the kingdom of Judah, God's people. And so they were betrayed. Edom was betrayed in history. It came to pass. And they were judged by God. And yet, we can protect our nation from that taking place as it took place in Edom by living the spiritual life. So, these five prophetic declarations in, in Obadiah 7, they hearken us, the reader, back to the very first verse, which says, the very, verse says, very first verse says, in my translation, Obadiah's vision. This is what my sovereign Lord says concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. Consequently, an envoy has been dispatched among the nations 
Arise, yes, let us arise up against her for war. So when it says arise, yes, let us rise up against her for war, as we pointed out, that's the Lord's command to the Gentile nations of the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world in Obadiah's day and age to wage war against the nation of Edom. Therefore, Obadiah, as we pointed out, records the Lord sovereignly ordering the Gentile nations of the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world in his day and age after the destruction of the kingdom of Judah by Babylon to wage war against Edom. By giving this order, we pointed out, the Lord was intervening in the affairs of mankind. Yes, he does. He still does today. He does it through using evil nations to destroy other evil nations. The United States and our allies in World War II were used by God to intervene. In, he, God used our nation and the allies of World War II to intervene and to stop Hitler and the, the, the kingdom of Japan, uh, the, uh, the nation, the empire of Japan, especially with the, 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 uh, the murdering Jews, the way Hitler was doing. God used our nation and our allies to intervene. And he did that. Therefore, we see here in Obadiah verse 7, in response to the Lord calling the Gentile nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world in Obadiah's day and age to wage war against Edom, these nations plotted the demise of Edom. God gave the order. He let the fallen angels take, have their way. And all the nations of the earth are under the, the deception of Satan. They're enslaved to him, deceived by him, under his power. <clears throat> so God said, Okay, as part of judgment, I'm handing Edom over to you. And you can do as you see fit with my restrictions. So that's, then the fallen angels went about going into the, putting in the hearts of the, their, Edom's allies to, uh, to uh, execute this betrayal, this perfect betrayal, actually. So this plot to destroy Edom was according to the will of the, of the God of Israel, as verse 1 of Obadiah makes clear. As we noted in Obadiah 3, the people of Edom will deceive themselves. Didn't it say that in Obadiah verse 3, my translation? Your presumptuous heart has caused you to enter the state of self-deception. You who live in the rock cliffs, speaking of their geographical location, your lofty dwelling place, who say within your heart, who will cause me to be brought down to the ground? Well, guess what? God did. However, now in verse 7, Obadiah 7, we see that she, Edom, will be deceived by others, and in particular by her friends. Edom's allies would prove to be her worst enemies. They would fail to help her in her hour of greatest need, just like she failed to help her blood relatives, the Israelites, in their hour of greatest need when the Babylonians attacked the kingdom of Judah. Betrayal, if this is the worst of all, their betrayal at the hands of their friends and allies. I don't know if you've ever had been, I'm sure some of you people have been uh, betrayed by a, what you thought was a friend. I mean, Judas betrayed the Lord himself, okay? Betrayal is a terrible thing. And it's to, just, to, it's just to believe somebody you trusted as your friend and they turn against you and do things behind your back, it's absolutely, it's totally deflating and discouraging beyond belief. It takes a long time. You never lose the scars. Well, that happened for the nation of Edom. They, you know, they could dish it out and betray their blood brothers, the king of Judah. But now, they're going to have to face that. They're going to have to learn a lesson, a very hard lesson. You don't, you treat others the way you'd want to be treated. Not only as individuals, but as nations should do that. And that's a, a warning to all the nations of the earth. 
including our own, Russia and China, all these nations. How do we treat other nations? How do we treat other nations? Very, very important. That because if we treat them poorly and exploit other nations, then God will deal with us on that. He will. That's a guarantee. So Douglas Stewart, great scholar, he says the following. Edom was a weak country militarily. Its small population and its limited agricultural wealth precluding powerful armed forces. Therefore, its ability to attack Judah's Negev and help plunder Jerusalem had depended on its obsequious alliance with uh, obscure alliance with more powerful states, especially Babylon. End of quote. So Douglas Stewart, he's a great scholar. I, I would highly recommend him uh, when, you, when you study uh, Old Testament books. I, I'd like to meet him someday. He actually is in Massachusetts. Now, ironically, Edom was known for her wise men, as I pointed out. And however, Edom, Obadiah verse 7 reveals that they would be totally and completely ignorant of that plot against them by her allies. So her wise men came to, came to, to nothing. They really didn't help them and protect them from this, this betrayal. So all of which we see here, Obadiah verse 7 reveals that they were totally and completely ignorant of this plot against them by her allies, all of which is predicted in Obadiah 7, came to pass in human history because she participated in the sacking of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and which we noted uh, in verses 10 through 14. Baker, another commentator, he says the downfall referred to here, probably occurred in the late 6th or early 5th century B.C. when the Nebedians went to the Edomites who took them in for a banquet. Once welcome inside Edom, Edomite territory, the Nebedians turned against their ally and killed their guards. Warren Worsby, he says, the nations today that boast of their political alliances and their formidable military establishments should take heed to what happened to Edom long ago, for that proud nation is no more. About 300 B.C., he says, the Nebedian Arabs drove out the Edomites and occupied their key city, Petra, the rose-red city, carved out of solid rock, which I showed you some pictures, excavations of that city last week. The Romans, he said, took Petra in A.D. 105, but the decline in the caravan routes eventually led to the nation's demise. So the Edomites, we'll close with this, the Edomites were blood bound by blood, to the Jews, since their progenitors Esau and Jacob, respectively, were brothers. Instead, running to the aid of the Jews to help fight Nebuchadnezzar, the Edomites helped the Babylonians. Now the Edomites would experience a great betrayal at the hands of her trusted friends, just as the kingdom of Judah suffered a great betrayal at the hands of those who should have been their friends, the Edomites. So therefore, God's punishment of Edom fit the crimes she, she committed against uh, Judah. Lex Telionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. All that means is that the punishment should fit the crime. Some Muslim nations believe in that, but they don't, they misinterpret it. So I'll give you an example. Some Muslim nations, the very, like uh, Iran, uh, I've heard some stories about Iran, but there are people I've heard, and I've seen photos, where a kid steals. Okay? He steals something. He's probably starving. He steals, and they go and cut his hand off, or they run it over with a truck. The punishment doesn't fit the crime there. Okay? They stole with their hands, so now we're going to cut off their hands. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Punishment fits the crime. So if you go and commit a, a, a murder, capital crime, you, God says you should, as it says in Genesis 9, you shed somebody's blood, innocent, 
person and you shed their blood, murder them cold-bloodedly, you need to face the death penalty. That's the punishment fits the crime. Of course, we don't believe in that anymore in this country, in many parts. We don't believe in the death penalty. So therefore, there's blood on the land, and God's angry with that. People are sitting, we set people in prisons sitting there for decades, and they're not getting rehabilitated, and they're just, it's a trillion, trillion dollar in industry to keep these guys who should be executed after they've been found guilty to a, a jury of their peers. But that's not happening. So we see that Edom is facing the consequences of their bad actions, of not loving their neighbor as themselves. And this is the same thing. The way you treat, this is true of nations and it's true of individuals. You want to go and treat, mistreat somebody in a certain way, guess what? God is going to deal with you as well. Just like he does with nations like Edom. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to treat, mistreat, and betray your blood relatives, well, I will judge you for that. And God's, this is a warning, not only to Asians, but also to, to the, in us as individuals, too, around the world, because God does rule. And history, right up to this point, demonstrates that, that he does rule. The evil of past generations, they don't walk. We have another generation of evil individuals, but they won't walk the face of the earth again, either. And if they don't believe in Jesus Christ like we have, then they're going to face the wrath of God in the lake of fire like every unregenerate person in history. So God gave Edom the same treatment she gave Judah. B.K. Smith says, archaeological and biblical evidence point to some time in the 6th century B.C. for the fulfillment of Obadiah's prophecy of Edom's destruction. Gluck, he a commentator, based his dating of the final Edomite period on his work at Tel Kalefa. Then he says, Obadiah prophesied deportation for Edom. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian ruler from 555 to 539 B.C., campaigned in southern Transjordan in northern Arabia in 552 B.C. He, might, he may have been the ally turned enemy. And then he says, by the latter third of the 5th century B.C., or perhaps earlier, the destruction of Edom was complete. He compares that with Malachi 1, 3-5. And their homeland was occupied by the Nebadian Arabs. It came to pass. God fulfilled, he fulfilled his word. He seized to fulfill his word. And this judgment against Edom, which he predicted, has been fulfilled in history. The Bible is inspired by God. God is alive and powerful. God is control of our, 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 our culture. God rules, he sits, he's the sovereign Lord. And he, we're in union with him with Jesus Christ. We are in union with him. So, let us go and live the spiritual life. Become invisible heroes. Ex ex uh, evangelize the non-Christian when possible, whenever possible. And it all starts with, as I told this kid down in uh, Florida, uh, Chris, I said, the best evangelism is this. Show them what kind of person you are to your conduct and your behavior. Be a good friend to people. Don't have to shove the gospel down with the Bible down with their throat. Let them be friends with them. Show them that you care about them. Not that you just want them to be another statistic. You know? No, you want to be friends with you want to be befriend people, get to know them. And then eventually, if they they want to, they'll ask you about Jesus. Or you'll get an opportunity to speak about Jesus. But you don't have to shove it down anybody's throat. It's a soft sell. 
You know? So, I, and I said, you're living the spiritual life, you're, you're, you're praying for your country and the non-Christian and our leaders. What a tremendous responsibility that God has given to us. It's a reason for getting up in the morning. We have a, we should know, every Christian, every Christian has a chance to be an invisible hero, a great in the, God, in the eyes of God, be a great man, a great woman in the eyes of God. Every single one of us has equal privilege and equal opportunity. It's right there. We should be excited about it every single day. And yes, talking to some of you, some of you, the th situations you're facing your job are difficult. Nobody wants to work anymore. Your own, your own company. You're, you're like, what's going on here? Okay, I get all. That. I know that. I've been. I was in the before I had my own church and started at night and when I was 39. Prior to that, I was working jobs. So I know exactly working for people and, uh, and and businesses that don't have their act together. I get all that. Okay. So I understand, I can empathize with you. But what got me up in the morning every day, when I had a lousy bosses and lousy pay, and, 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 and what am I doing with my life? I knew that I could, I could rise above that. My circumstances were not going to dictate my mental attitude. My circumstances were not going to dictate my actions. I'm not going to get down on myself. I'm not going to get down on the situation. I'm going to take the situation that God gave me, and it stinks and it's difficult, and rise above, transcend that, because the spiritual life will do that. I'll, like eagles' wings. We read in Isaiah 40. He can lift us up and take us through those things, no matter how bad it gets. Look at history's proved that. With Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego sent into exile to Babylon, their loved ones were murdered. They were sent into exile. They had to learn the ways of the Babylonians. Okay, they had to learn another language. They were pagans. Okay, wicked pagan people, ungodly. They, you, you read about. Okay, everything you want. And they lived the spiritual life of the Old Testament that God gave them. And they lived by faith. They walked by faith, not by sight, not by their circumstances. And look what they did—a major impact. We read in the Book of Daniel. They got in scripture. They got in scripture and given us an example to follow. Who knows, one of you out there might be in heaven thought very highly like Daniel was. Oh, Daniel, the angel told him, was it Michael? And Daniel was chapter 10. Oh, your beloved, where? In heaven, on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the elect angels. Maybe some of us are beloved by the angels for persevering despite the difficult circumstances. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Whatever it's going on, you can rise above it and become a great in the eyes of God and make an impact in your personal periphery, in your town, your jobs, your neighborhoods, your families, in the country, and in the angelic conflict. It's the greatest thing we can do for our country is to be great in the eyes of God and do all, and, and we do that Again, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everyone here today, and we thank you so much for their patience with me today, and, and I just pray that you would use what the Spirit said through me today and use it mightily to encourage, rebuke, and correct if necessary, whatever it takes, so that we can continue to go forward and become more like your Son, Jesus Christ, which is the greatest thing that we could do for our nation. And again, Father, I lift up our nation and those who are uh, faithful in our nation and are, have integrity. I just pray, Father, for them, that you give them encouragement and, and provide for them everything they need. 
I also pray for those who are not with any integrity, have no integrity, and are basically working for the devil. I just pray for them that you would bring in whatever circumstances, people, adversity, prosperity necessary to cause them to see their need for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, your Son, Jesus Christ, so that they too can taste this so great salvation that we experience and enjoy and will enjoy in the future as well. And we thank you for the encouragement the Spirit has given to us and instruction, and we just pray, Father, that it would, this lesson would be a blessing to your people now and in the future through the recordings. In our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. And if I may, I'd like to sing us a song, and we'll, we'll go out with a song. I always like to go out with a song. It's called Take Up Your Cross. I'm not here.
Smith.